If you have your Bibles with you, please open with me to the book of Jude. Jude, our series in Jude continues. We introduced the book of Jude to you all last week, and today we look specifically at verses 4 to 7. But for context's sake, let's begin in the beginning of Jude. Jude, for the end of your Bible, just before John's revelation. Verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Let's come to God in prayer. God of all light and truth, bless now the preaching of your holy and living word. Bless us as we worship now with our ears, with our hearts and minds. Enable us by the power of your spirit to understand what we hear and to translate what we hear into obedience. Glory to God in the exposition of scripture. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Jude gives us his thesis, the thesis of his epistle, right out of the gate in verse 3, the central unifying theme of his letter. He writes this, he writes to exhort, he writes an exhortation to the church universal, and he's exhorting us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We are contenders, we are to contend. Now then, in order to contend rightly, we must know who we are contending against and what we are contending for. And Jude makes both of these abundantly clear. We are contending for the faith, our faith, for the Christian faith, the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. What Jude refers to in verse 3 as our common salvation. We must fight for our faith and we must defend it. And that in the marketplace of ideas against, against false religions, against unbiblical worldviews and belief systems, and against all that would seek to undermine and subvert the Christian faith. We are contending for the faith. We are contending for our faith, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and why are we contending? Well, Jude tells us. Jude says because 
certain men have crept in. And they've crept in unnoticed. They have crept into the visible church. They stand among the rank and file. They take positions of authority. They, they serve and, and act as if they belong. They look the part and they act the part. And so they come in, as it were, Jude says, unnoticed. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are, Jude says, creepers. They have, they have crept in unnoticed. They have crept in under the radar, taking advantage of the undiscerning. Friends, if there is one characteristic that the contemporary church is sorely lacking, it is discernment. Her lack of discernment. The ability to discern between right and wrong. Between, between error and orthodoxy. Good and evil. Between light and darkness. I'm reminded of a proverb that I memorized in high school. Proverbs 11 verse 22. The church without discernment, like a gold ring in a pig's snout, is a woman with no discretion. With no discernment. They creep in unnoticed. Because? How is it that they could creep in unnoticed? Well, it's because the church has failed to notice. The church has not taken great care or gone through great pains to get to know. And and to notice those who are entering into the fold. Who are taking a seat at the family dinner table. By way of example, we all, all of us are very careful about who we allow into the inner circle of our immediate and even extended families. We are very careful about who we consider family. And so should we be as we consider our church family. Let us, if you will, let us, let us notice one another. Let us notice each other. Let us use our discretion and discernment as we, and if you jump forward to verse 21, as we keep ourselves, Jude says, in the love of God. As we contend together. Let us notice one another as we worship side by side. So that my hope is that no one comes in or goes out of the membership of this church unnoticed. And that for our good. Our good individually and our good corporately. Well, and what follows in verses 4 all the way down really to verse 13, Jude gives us a full character sketch. He gives us a profile, if you will, uh, a forensic sketch of the perpetrators. A profile of, of these very men who have crept in unnoticed. He writes this in verse 5 if you look down at your text. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this. He says, I want to remind you of something that, that you know that you once knew. And so this is, this is not unfamiliar. It is not unfamiliar to us if we have been diligently reading our Bibles. The picture Jude paints is a familiar one. He says that it comes by way of reminder. And now then, in the game of Pictionary, as Jude begins to sketch, I hope all of this rings a bell. Well, this afternoon, Jude gives us three marks, three telltale signs 
of, if you will, marked men. Men and women by implication. Who are marked out, he says in verse 4, for condemnation. Three marks. Three telltale signs. Firstly, Jude tells us, look at verse 4, that they are ungodly. They are ungodly, bless you. They are ungodly. Now, this ungodliness is not something that will be made obvious by first impressions. Well, not in this case at least. Because, because these people are pretenders. Their ungodliness is hidden behind a mask of hypocrisy. Friends, pretenders pretend. Actors, they act. And so ungodliness in this case is not something that will reveal itself right out of the gate. Rather, it will require an assessment of the whole of one's life and practice. Patterns, habits, practices, lifestyle. And Jude tells us that this ungodliness can most clearly be seen in that these ungodly men, marked men for condemnation, they turn the grace of God into lewdness. If you have an ESV translation, it says that they turn the grace of God into sensuality. The NESB says licentiousness. The NIV reads this, who changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. And this, friends, is an absolute abomination. I am, I am tempted to say that this is an unpardonable sin. Friends, to take the grace and, and the mercy of God, to use His abounding love and grace towards sinners, to take the very heart and soul of the Christian gospel, the attribute of God whereby salvation comes to fallen and sinful men and women, to take the grace of God and change it and turn it into a license for immorality, for more sin? My goodness! This is unspeakable. This is, this is abomination beyond compare. This, friends, is what turns angels into demons. Image bearers into children of wrath by nature. This, this is absolutely to change and turn the grace of God into lewdness, into sensuality, into a license for immorality. This is absolutely diabolical. To take God's grace and change God's grace. To use His grace towards sinners as a license. This is absolutely diabolical. And all of you Greek students and perhaps Spanish speakers can hear the word diabolos. El diablo, if you will. In my choice of words. Diabolical. This is the epitome of ungodliness, if you will. To take the only hope, the only hope that sinful man has to be reconciled to a holy God, namely His grace, and then to use His grace only to further your own immorality, sensuality, and sinful lifestyle. Beloved, all such men are marked out for this condemnation. This is, as it were, to desecrate the holy of holies. 
It is, it is to trample underfoot the Son of God and consider the blood of the covenant a common thing. It is to insult the Spirit of grace. And God says of all such, Hebrews 10.30, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Beloved, this high-handed sin, turning the grace of God into license, this is a denial if you look at verse 4. Of God's Lordship. Of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says, They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Their lifestyle, their ungodliness reveals their denial of God the Father and God the Son. Their Lordship. Almighty God is, in other words, not Lord in their lives. Jesus Christ is not their Lord and Savior. Rather, they're ruled and mastered by their own lusts and desires. They are yet still under the bondage and lordship of their own sin, which is their slave master. How can you know? How can you know what controls a person? It's really easy. It's simple. Just, just watch Just observe them. Watch them live. Career, job, success. This is the lordship of of livelihood, perhaps. Perhaps it's it's money or greed or, or the markets. Maybe reputation, relationships, and respect. This is the lordship of esteem and admiration. Perhaps it's an appetite, lust, and and desire. The NIV says sensuality. This is the lordship of lust. Perhaps you're dominated by pride or or anger or or jealousy. Or or perhaps it's a combination of all of these. Beloved, the ungodly deny the lordship of God and of His Christ. Their lord and master is ultimately self. Their own carnal desires, whatever they be. These marked men are marked by their ungodliness. They are characterized by ungodliness, which expresses itself in abusing God's grace and and denying the Lordship of Christ. Secondly, the second mark, they are marked by unbelief. Look at verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, That the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And what Jude does here is he teaches us by way of reminder. He wants to remind us of what we already know of the Exodus and of Egypt. And then he's going to take us back even further in verse 6. In verse 6, he's going to take us all the way back to the days of Noah and to the flood. When the sons of God, when fallen angels took wives for themselves from the daughters of men, according to Genesis chapter 6. And then in verse 7, if you look down at Jude, he takes us back to Sodom and Gomorrah and to their destruction. All of these then are by way of reminder. All of these as descriptions of the ungodly who are marked out for condemnation. And you remember well enough that God did in fact. You remember the exodus from Egypt? Of course we do. 
You remember well enough that God did in fact save the people of Israel out of the bondage of the slavery of Egypt. He delivered his people from the persecution of Pharaoh, Moses, and the plagues culminating in the Passover, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And then in Exodus 12 to 14, the crossing of the sea. Pharaoh and his armies are, remember, engulfed and they are destroyed while Israel walked through the sea on dry land, walls of water to their left and to their right. And then, and then, provisions in the wilderness. Miracle after miracle, water from rocks, manna out of nowhere, manna from heaven, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, military conquests and victories against impossible odds. You had a ragtag, motley crew of weaponless, warriorless, nomadic shepherd peoples conquering kings. God himself. Friends, that's impossible. They had God himself leading them through the wilderness, providing, protecting them, establishing Israel. You remember, he gave them his law and they went into covenant with God. Can you imagine? I mean, friends, can you imagine seeing some of those wonders and then experiencing them? I mean, drinking water from the rock in a dry desert. Manna, manna, which means literally manna. What is this? What? That's what it means. It's manna bread eating manna bread in the middle of nowheresville. And you think after all of that, after experiencing all of that, you would think that every last one of the Israelites was believing. That that they would, all of them, trust in the Lord. You would think that every last one of them would put their faith in God's promises and in God's provisions, that they would believe and, and keep covenant. You would think the whole lot of them would. But they were, in fact, faithless, marked by unbelief. I suggest to you, beloved, that seeing is not believing. And so even though the Israelites were temporarily saved from the bondage and slavery of Egypt, Jude says, afterwards, the Lord destroyed those who did not believe. Those who, despite experiencing God's goodness and mercy, were still unbelieving. Who were ultimately destroyed because of their unbelief. The first mark is ungodliness. The second mark is that they were and are unbelieving. They are marked by unbelief. Despite experiencing the temporal blessings of God, they were yet unbelieving and did not trust in God. Much like the Israelites, these men here in Jude, like the Israelites, they heard the gospel. They understood, at least intellectually they understood, the grace and the goodness of God. They, they had experienced the goodness of, of Christian fellowship and the power and love of the Christian community, the church. And yet they remain in unbelief. Beloved, do you know what, and do you remember what happened to that ungodly and unbelieving generation? Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. 
Miracle after miracle, provision, protection, the law, God's covenant, His own presence with them in the wilderness. Do you remember what happened to that generation? God tells us in Psalm 95. He says this, God says in Psalm 95, they tested me. They saw my works for 40 years. They grieved me. This people is a people, listen to what God says through the psalmist, who go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. So, so, I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter into my rest. And the author of Hebrews commenting on Psalm 95 tells us that that generation was judged and destroyed because of their evil heart of unbelief. And thus, Hebrews 3.17, their corpses fell in the wilderness. Jude tells us that the Lord destroyed those who did not believe. What a picture. What What an image. The Exodus generation was left to die in the wilderness. And God, as you know, would raise up another generation. A generation of Joshua's and Caleb's. A generation, yes, born in the wilderness, but one that would believe in God and one that would trust in Him. And Joshua's generation would leave the corpses of their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles, family members and friends, they would leave them for dead. A generation that was given so much, that that was, as Jude said, saved out of Egypt, but a generation that refused to believe. An evil and perverse generation, says the psalmist and the author of Hebrews. And thus the same, the same will happen to those pretend Christians. Pretenders who creep in unnoticed. Those who feign Christianity. Those those who play, they play Christianity. Men who are marked by ungodliness and unbelief. And as once happened to the Israelites, likewise to these counterfeit Christians. Pause. Brothers and sisters here, and non-Christians, because I know there are non-Christians who are here with us today. Let me say this frankly, and let me say this bluntly. We are not here to play Christianity. To play religious and spiritual games so that we feel better about ourselves, so that we can pat ourselves on the back because we feel better than the next man. We are actually trying to live out what we believe, albeit imperfectly. Sinners yet still, but sinners who have placed their full trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Savior and the Messiah who came to seek and to save the lost sinners and rebels, the likes of us, who came to save us from sin, death, and hell, 
who's come to save us from the holy wrath of a good and holy God. Save us because all have sinned and fallen short the glory of God. Save us because the wages of sin is death and judgment, as it should be. Else God would not be holy. He would not be just. Yea, He would not be good. And Jesus Christ saves sinners. How does He do it? Listen to the message of Christianity. He does it by offering Himself as a substitute. As a sacrifice of atonement in place of and on behalf of all and anyone who would believe. For all who would put their trust in Him, in Christ. The scripture says, for all who repent and put their faith in Jesus. And if you come to him, you must turn away from your sin and unbelief. Take up a cross, die to self, and come to Christ. This is life and life eternal. Because because Jesus didn't just die on a cross, you understand. We live in Jesus Christ because, well, not because he's, he's dead now, he's not. But we live in Him because Jesus didn't just die on a cross as a substitute, but He conquered and defeated death and He rose from the dead on the third day. He defeated sin, death, and He satisfied the wrath of God. He is risen. Every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. This is, as it were, Easter Sunday. He is risen. He is alive and well. He lives. And so also all who are united to this living Savior by faith. Faith in His death and resurrection. And by it we are reconciled to God and brought into a living relationship with our Creator and Redeemer. We are born again. We become new creatures, new creations. We are Christians. This is what we believe. This is, friends, this is what we proclaim. Christ and Him crucified for the salvation of sinners. And we declare that those who do not believe, Jude Verse 5, those who do not believe, we declare, they will be destroyed. It's not church going, Bible reading. It's not moral living that makes you right with God. It is, do you believe or not? Is your trust and faith in Jesus Christ or not? This is of the essence. This is Christianity. We are not playing religious games here at Pillar Baptist. If you are a non-Christian here today, I thank God that you have come to this service today. Would to God that you would not walk out of here unbelieving. We implore you, be ye reconciled to God. Come to Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you can be saved. Thirdly, and lastly this afternoon, the third mark, the third telltale sign is that all such men, they live contrary to the Creator, they they defy the Creator, and they defy the created order. Let me say that again. Those who are marked out for condemnation are those who live contrary to their Creator, and they defy the the created order. They, as we're about to read, transgress the boundaries of creation. And this will make more sense as I explain what Jude has written right here. Now Jude, if you look down at your text there, gives us two examples of living contrary to the Creator and 
to the created order. First, if you look at verse 6, the angels, the angels. And then the second example of living contrary to the creator and his created order, the second is Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And both references, as I mentioned, come from the Genesis account. The first from the days of Noah before the flood, Genesis 6. And the second from the days of Abraham, Genesis chapter 19. Well, let's take them one at a time. Here we go. The first comparison. Jude compares these ungodly, unbelieving, marked men in the church to fallen angels. To the angels, Jude says, verse 6, who did not keep their proper domain. The ESV says it this way, who did not stay within the position of their authority. The NIV does it best. It reads this, these angels abandoned their proper dwellings. Now, what is Jude talking about? What is he referring to? Jude is speaking of a group, a a category of fallen angels who in the days of Noah, before the flood, they transgressed the boundaries that God established and they lusted after the daughters of men. They lusted after human women. Angels and women. This is according to Genesis 6. And you can read all about this if you want. Go back. These angels, these demons, they took wives for themselves from the daughters of men. Angels and angelic beings are not supposed to do that. Let me say that again. Angels are not supposed to take wives for themselves, much less wives, from among the daughters of men. This was a transgression of the boundaries and of the boundary maker, namely God himself. Now, I am not going to launch off into a study about all of that, but you can go back. There's a sermon. We just did the book of Genesis. There's a sermon I preached last year in Genesis 6. And you can go back and listen to your heart's content. We did a full study on that passage back in the Genesis series. Now, there's a brother in our midst who often comes up to me after the sermon and says, man, he says, why didn't you unpack that further? Why didn't you explain all of that? And I said, well, it would have taken too long. He's like, just make it a five-part series then. Well, bless your heart, brother. In order to protect his identity, I won't tell you who he is. But his name rhymes with Harold. I don't know if he's here, but brother, bless you. So, Jude, Jude, he compares these condemned men, these marked men to the angels who transgressed the boundaries. They, they went outside of the boundaries of the created order. And thus, thus they defied the creator. Angels are not supposed to do that. They are to stay within the boundaries set by God. The second comparison, and, and perhaps the second illustration will help clarify the first if you didn't get the first one. Uh, secondly, these marked men, these ungodly and unbelieving men are compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 7. Who gave themselves over to sexual immorality and went after strange flesh. 
Again, other translations say, who indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Uh, the NASB says that they went after different or strange flesh. Now, interesting. Now, what was Sodom and, uh, what was Sodom and Gomorrah known for? Well, the idea of sodomy comes from Sodom. And I'm not going to explain all of it. But essentially, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for sexual immorality, specifically homosexuality. And why is this so evil? Why is this so abominable in God's sight? Because it transgresses the boundaries and it goes outside of of the boundaries that God created for us. It is to defy the Creator and to transgress or defy the boundaries of His creation. Jude says strange flesh, different flesh. He says unnatural desires. And so just as the angels, these angelic beings, are not to take and marry the daughters of men, neither are men to marry men or women to marry women. This, friends, is unnatural. And it is a violation of the created order and ultimately of the Creator Himself. Turn with me to Genesis 19. And let me paint the scene for you. Keep your finger in the book of Jude. Genesis 19. Two angels, if you remember, two angels are sent down. They are sent down to Sodom and Gomorrah on an extraction mission. The mission was to get Lot and his family out of Sodom before its destruction. And so they find Lot and they return to his home in Sodom. And they do so in order to spend the night only to leave in the morning before fire and brimstone hail down upon the city. That evening, evil men of Sodom hear that Lot is entertaining guests. And so they assemble this group of evil men, this rabble outside of Lot's home, and they're just outside of the door. And they call out to Lot, and they demand that Lot bring out his guests, the two angels. Verse 5 says, bring them out to us so that we may know them carnally. In other words, they were intent on violating these angels, raping them as it were, raping angels. Lot says, no, they, they're my guests. Are you crazy? And so the mob gets unruly and they begin to press upon Lot and they are about to break down his door. And look at Genesis 19, look at verse 9, the second half of the verse. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, the angels that is, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. The angels pull Lot in and they strike the Sodomites with blindness. Now, you would think that that would have stopped them, it deterred them all of a sudden, the lights go out. I would have been like, something's wrong, I'm going home. But the text tells us that even in their blindness, even then they became weary 
trying to find the door. Groping, looking for and reaching after the door, despite being struck with blindness. This, beloved, is the extent and the ravenous nature of sin and wickedness. The lengths and the extents that evil men will go through in order to indulge their sinful desires. This was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. They gave themselves to sexual immorality and went after strange flesh. The third mark, the third telltale sign of these marked condemned men, of these counterfeit Christians, is that they defy the Creator and they defy His created order. Let me say this loud and clear. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be in Christ among God's people and faithful to His Word and support or approve of homosexuality, bisexuality, or transsexuality. All of these and more are violations. All of these and more are bold-faced defiance against the Creator and His creation. And they are groping for the door today people trying to indulge their sin at any cost. Despite biological and genetic reality, they tell themselves that they are something that they are not to the point of mutilating themselves in order to indulge a lie, to indulge their sinful desires. Brothers and sisters, it is not a loving thing to let them go on in their lie. To let them go on in this self-destructive, creator-denying, creation-denying behavior. It is not loving because it only leads to destruction. Look at verse 7 if you turn back with me to the book of Jude. It only leads to the vengeance of eternal fire. And then verse 6, everlasting change in the judgment of the great day. And verse 5, the destruction of those who did not believe. All of this, Jude says, is infiltrating the church in Jude's day. And let me say in our day. Just as it did in the days of the Exodus. Just as was true in the days of Noah. Just as was in the days of Abraham. So is it today. Peter, like Jude, Peter who discipled Jude, and we won't turn there, but Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2 in the same vein, warning the church of these marked men. Now, let me quote to you C.S. Lewis because everybody likes C.S. Lewis and I do too. Mr. Lewis says this in his Reflections on the Psalms. If the divine call of God does not make us better, it makes us very much the worse. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Of all created beings, the wickedest is the one who originally stood in the immediate presence of God. Referring, of course, to Lucifer. And we think also of Judas, who was one of Jesus' very disciples. And so we are not surprised that these false teachers, these false prophets and marked men, they come from within the community. They come from within, from the family of God. John says in 1 John 2.19 that the Antichrist, he went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they departed from us to demonstrate that they were never of us. Well, beloved, how do we contend for the faith? And I'm looking at my watch and everyone's like, what? How do we contend for the faith? What a doom and gloom Sunday. How can we contend? This is Jude's thesis. How are we to contend for the faith in the midst of all of this doom and gloom, destruction and judgment, the wickedness of the ungodly? Pastor, encourage us. Give us a word. Well, let me give you a word from the three examples. The first, the Exodus. Yes, yes, an unbelieving generation was destroyed in the wilderness. But there was another generation, as I mentioned. A generation of Joshua's and Caleb's that believed in God's promises. And they held fast to His Word. A generation that trusted in God and kept covenant. They refused to compromise. And they looked for a better country. Beloved, let us do the same. Let us do the same. Or how about the days of Noah? Yes, wickedness had increased on the earth. Yes, demonic activity and the evil of fallen men was at a fever pitch. But, but, there was a Noah. There was a man who walked with God. A man who was upright in his generation. A man who trusted in God and found grace in his eyes. Would to God that we would walk in the same. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and the cities of the plain. But Abraham believed in the Lord. And he trusted in God. Imperfect and sinful though he was, he was faithful yet still. And we, we are his descendants. As the father of faith, we are the true seed of Abraham who have trusted in Christ. How then shall we contend? How shall we fight and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Jump over with me to verse 17. And I don't mean to take Pastor Dave's thunder because he will be preaching this section of the book of Jude. But David, if you will allow me a little thunder. Verse 17. He says, but you, strong contrast here. But you, beloved, let us be building each other up in our most holy faith. How can we contend? Friends, let us strive for what leads to edification. What leads to and produces sanctification. Let us pursue and spur one another on to spiritual things. To the things of God. Let us pursue the things of God together. And let us, verse 20, if you jump over there. Let us do this all the while in prayer. Prayerful, ceaseless prayer. Praying always for all things, for everyone. Spirit and truth. We're praying in the Spirit. Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Just as is our worship. And look at verse 21. He says, keeping yourselves. Keep yourselves. Keep each other in the love of God. Asking, am I my brother's keeper? And answering in the same breath, yes I am. Asking the hard questions. This is why we live together as a family and community. We ask hard questions to one another. We exhort one another. We come alongside of each other, rebuke when necessary, encourage always, striving together to love God all the more. More love to Thee, O Christ. This, beloved, is how we can and will protect ourselves and contend for the faith, for our faith. Remember the Word. 
Build each other up. Pray according to that word. And keep each other in God's love. Speaking the truth in love. Each to the other. And all for God. Let's pray together. Our good and gracious God, we tremble at the thought of your holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. We tremble because we are not holy. We tremble because we have sinned and we continue to sin. This is our confession that we are sinners. We are in desperate need of your grace. Lord, have mercy upon us. We are wretched. And as we confess our sins, and turn from them in repentance. We know that you are good. And that you are gracious. And abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Love and mercy that has been poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. In him we have the forgiveness that we seek. And the grace that we so desperately need. And now in him. We are marked out. Not for condemnation but we are marked out for salvation, for redemption and reconciliation. Marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit, we rejoice in our salvation that you predestined before all worlds. We are humbled to the dust and we are eternally grateful. And now as our worship continues, we give you all thanks and praise. Be exalted in the praises of your people. This is our request and desire, which we offer to you in the name of your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.